the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy. Off the bat, I want to say thank you for all the great feedback from episode 3 with Jason Gleaves. It's amazing to see so many people enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Jason's a great character and make sure you've gone on to Amazon to check out his two books as well. Folks, I just want to also say that tonight's show is a great guest lined up. It's Lieutenant Tim McMillan, as you'll probably know him on Twitter. Uh, Tim was really gracious with his time and we had a fantastic conversation earlier on. So much so, as I announced on Twitter, I've decided to split it into two parts. The first part being released tonight, Monday the 25th of May, and I'll release the second episode a bit later in the week for you to digest. Tonight's episode, you're going to hear about Tim's journey into ufology and investigative writing, his own UFO UAP sighting, which is fascinating, his thoughts on the New York Times article of December 2017, the most intriguing aspects of the government's admissions, debating with the debunkers, Mick West, we're looking at you, and an exclusive from Tim at the end of part one. And before we head into the show, folks, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been in touch on Twitter this week. It's been great conversing with everyone. Hello to all the new followers to That UFO Podcast, that's at UFO UAP AM on Twitter and that UFO podcast on Facebook. We do have a Patreon set up now for that UFO podcast. Times are hard just now, but if you can contribute anything, there are three tiers. There's a $1 tier which gives you a shout out at the end of each episode of the show. That also buys me a coffee. A $5 tier which gives you those same benefits, but will give you access to upcoming bonus episodes that will be released, such as the Magi UFO episode I released last week that went down a storm. And the $10 tier again gives you all those previous benefits, but I will pick any content you choose and create a show based on it. That could be a movie, a documentary, or just my thoughts on a famous UFO incident as well. And I might be able to get one of the guests on as well to have a chat about that. So again, anything you can contribute, that would be greatly appreciated, folks, okay? But as always, and I'll keep saying it, your listens, streams, and downloads are the main thing. Please, please, please remember to subscribe, like, and retweet. Thanks, folks. Enjoy the interview. So on the line with me now is guest number four on the show. Quite a list of accomplishments. So we've got a retired law enforcement officer, investigative writer, respected public speaker, TED Talks featured presenter, researcher and consultant. The list does go on, but I'm sure most importantly, from what I've heard in previous interviews and just in speaking to him, he's a family man as well. Um, so on the show, I've got uh, Lieutenant Tim McMillan retired. Tim, how are you doing? Good. Great, man. How are you? I'm very well, Tim. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. I uh, appreciate that you've got kids. I've got kids, so we had to do a bit of rescheduling. But uh, life life gets in the way, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. But you know what? It's 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 good. And it's good to uh, good, good to put family first. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's very important for me. People I don't talk about it a lot publicly, but it is. And, and I have much respect for people who equally do the same because it's, it's remarkable how fast those kids grow up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Very, yeah. I've, uh, I've had to lock mine out from the outside, so they're, they're currently stuck in the house with supervision. <laughs> with supervision. They're not left on their own. Um, I was, was going to ask Tim, so uh, straight off the bat, I've got a question from a listener, but it is relevant. Uh, I've noticed, uh, obviously, with your accent, you are from the US, but you're based in Germany. Mm. Something yes. I'm not too sure how it came about. What was your decision to kind of leave the US for Germany? What kind of happened there? And what, what do you like about living in Germany? Oh, sure. That's a great question. Yeah, nobody ever asked me that. I, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times because it's no secret, although I, I may be don't go into it a lot because, um, you know, I, I do try to keep uh, my personal life somewhat private. Uh, but uh, the whole reason I'm in Germany is my wife actually works for the Department of Defense as a teacher. She's a school teacher, kindergarten teacher. And so uh, after I had taken early retirement from policing, I was working at a, a private firm as an intelligence and investigative analyst. And um, we had an opportunity, she had an opportunity to relocate and restation here in Germany. And so we jumped on it because it gave me a chance to work from home and, and do a lot of the stuff that I do now and uh, give the kids and everybody else a broader perspective of just life in general and people and culture. Um, and so I've loved it so far. Of course, you know, the last couple months we've been in the whole, uh, you know, pandemic lockdown. And but yeah. uh, in terms of just being here, it's great. Uh, it's uh, you know, we're in southwest Germany near Trier. So we're about 30 minutes from the border of Luxembourg, France, Belgium. Uh, it's great to have an opportunity to get to meet all these different people, see different cultures. It's great for the kids. I think it's that was one of the big things is um, I did. I am from the States. I grew up, spent my whole life in the southern United States right there in the antebellum. And so it was nice to, to get out and see different things. And, you know, where we are here, you know, I can 30 yards from me. Some of my neighbors have some of the old 2000 uh, year old Roman long wall. Um, All right. Built into their wall, like it's it, the house we actually live in here is uh, 400 years old, and so it's really cool. And that's the I talk a lot about UFO stuff, but actually people will be surprised. I'm a big military history buff, and so it's cool to go to some of these sites and different things around here. But yeah, that's my my wife just happens to be a school teacher, and fortunately with the Department of Defense, so that gave us this opportunity to to come over here. Awesome. That's amazing. Um, so you've you've had a bit of a, a journey through your, your last kind of 20 years, just looking at your bio online. And what I wanted to do for any listeners that weren't too familiar with that, or if it's been a while since they've heard it, and, and more so for me, tell me a little bit about that journey and what led you to the point where you're now writing some of the most relevant articles on the, the UFO subject. What's kind of brought you to this point? Sure. Yeah. No, my, my life is a is a big journey of happenstances and unintended consequences. You know, I never wanted to be a cop, but spent almost 20 years as one uh, way back uh, in my youth. I was actually in college for to be a research. I couldn't decide if I want to be an astronomer or a research cognitive psychologist. And so uh, 
some kind of unfortunate events that involved tragedies and friends actually were killed in a home invasion uh, led me into deciding to be a cop. And I was very fortunate. I worked for an agency uh, just outside Savannah, Georgia, who was a good uh, medium sized agency, had a great chief of police that kind of you could do as much or as little. Well, no, let me take the little you could do as much as you wanted to. And so I just took the ball and ran with that. And I was very fortunate uh, to have the opportunity to be, you know, I was a violent crimes investigator for years. I got certified in, uh, as a CSI crime scene investigator, though. I don't like that side. I tell people I had to do it, but I'm not a lab guy. Um, I was a canine handler for years and, uh, and violent crimes interrogator, which was interesting. Um, where I interrogated most part one crimes. Uh, I did still finish my, my college education, everything in, cognitive psychology and actually a bachelor's in mathematics. And so a lot of the stuff that I did in law enforcement pertained to uh, behavioral analysis, behavioral investigation. Uh, I was an instructor, so I taught uh, a lot of the stuff that you kind of into intuition for policing. Like, how do you how do you bring that into the realm of science? And, um, you know, that you hear people talk about that my spidey sense going off. You kind of taught people what that means. In a, in a more scientific sense, and how do you heighten that? Uh, along with uh, profiling, which because the term profiling and policing is not a good term <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, criminal investigative analysis, same thing, behavioral analysis and profiling. So that was kind of my specialty. And I did a lot with um, Department of Justice, the federal government, a lot of different entities there helping out with different uh all criminal justice, domestic terrorism type investigations and uh, did that for a number of years, uh, almost 17. And then finally, like, like I said earlier about being a family man, my last few years in policing, I was the nighttime duty officer, which meant I was the essentially the de facto chief of police when the chief and all the, the patrol commander were off. So at nighttime, uh, I was the guy in charge. And that put me on straight nights and I didn't, I have small kids. And so I, I never saw them. And so that's what, that's what led to my early retirement. I think I've seen people uh, online or in message groups be like, and why would a guy leave after only 17 years? And uh, how can he be retired? And it really comes down to, uh, you know, uh, I actually, my, my son, when he was in kindergarten, I saw his journal, uh, after he had gotten done with school and I saw a picture that I hadn't seen before that said, my dad's a cop. Uh, he's a good cop. I love him. I never get to see him. And that was literally it. Two months later, I retired. And by early retirement, I, I cashed out my last three years through a police benevolence association thing. So I took early retirement. And um, the only reason I use that moniker even now today is because I, I am a um, qualified law enforcement expert with an organization in the United States that does speaking consulting stuff. I don't know. I don't believe I'm an expert or anybody's an expert in anything because that means, you know, it all. And I definitely don't, but that's the only reason I even hang on to that kind of moniker. Um, and so when it comes to now fast forwarding, where did I get into, uh, journalism and more importantly, kind of UFO journalism the past year, uh, the topic of USOs has, interested me for probably the last seven or eight years. And uh, I have never shied away from the fact that the initial interest was after I had my own sighting of something. 
Now, well, that was that was going to be my my, my question after. So, yeah, mm-hmm. please tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. No, it was, and I always qualify it and say I I saw something very interesting, but I, I I wouldn't put it in the same realm as some other people's experiences, who I think are much more dramatic. Mine was because again. Where I was in Savannah is a very military rich environment. In fact, it's if you look at the 2015 East Coast events, uh, some of those occurred, you know, 30 miles off the coast of where we were. I mean, right there. But um, yeah, one night late at night, I uh, me and another friend who was uh, she she's actually still a police sergeant in the county police there. I was leaving her house and we were just outside chatting. And all of a sudden, uh, these three lights uh, about as big as like a pea at arm's length. So just cut on as if somebody flipped on a light switch and they were all in a straight line. And it was definitely one of these things. It's not one of these things where you, you, you see something in the distance. You're like, what's that? This was like, what the hell is that? Like it was obvious. And they just stayed there motionless. And then a few minutes later, they or excuse me, a few seconds, maybe 20, 30 seconds later, they just cut off like somebody flipped a light switch again. And then uh, probably another 15, 20 seconds after that, they cut back on along with two others. So now there's five. Uh, it was kind of the antique yellow white hue all in a straight line. And at that point, they were low enough on the horizon where the ambient light of the city that was right there um, was blocked out. And, and suddenly you could see what appeared to be like a rectangular, like they were attached to something. But if they were attached to something, it was massive. Um, I always caution people on that last part because I'm cautious myself that I understand how the brain works in perception. And so were, were they attached to a structure? I don't know. Your brain will fill in gaps sometimes. And I think everybody should be cautious of that whenever they see something weird. But it appeared to be. And then uh, probably 30 seconds after that, they just cut off as if, Somebody flipped a light switch. And so I was fascinated. The whole ride home, I've told people, about, it's, a, it's a wonder I didn't wreck. Got an old Jeep Wrangler. And I'm like looking out the whole time, like wanting to see something again. And that's when I got into, uh, you know, I started Googling, like, what the heck is this? What is this? And uh, stumbled upon MUFON, you know, had never really known about this kind of stuff. And um, actually reported that sighting to MUFON and later found out that someone about 20, 30 miles west of us had reported the exact same thing, probably 10 minutes before us. And so I still don't know who that is, but I do know that, you know, <laughs> mass hallucination silly. That's no, that's not a real thing. You maybe have heard people use that explanation. There's no empirical evidence for that. Uh, so I know it was real. I know that somebody else saw it, too, that I still don't know who they are. What it was, I don't know, but it got me interested in my initial interest for the first up until about last year. Uh, I people probably don't realize I did a lot of research to this topic, but outside the quote UFO community. And this was actually speaking with witnesses, people who had seen things. And um, I was able to kind of qualify a behavioral profile. Same thing we do in the criminal justice job where you could determine you know, the behavioral profile of somebody who had actually seen something that was mm-hmm. truly challenging reality or somebody who'd seen something weird. And so I approached it those first couple of years from my background in cognitive psychology. And it is still a question that I still 
pose to this day, which fascinates me, which is, are what people seeing really what they see? And that doesn't mean that it's not aliens or it doesn't mean it's not something sentient and intelligent. Um, but I still am very curious to the fact that I think you will see uh, if you really look at the history of UFO sightings, what is seen or what is perceived to be seen follows along with the kind of technological zygots to the time, the late yeah. 19, 19th century. It's airships. Now, now, now you hear people associating with drones, autonomous drones. So it always follows along what people see is like just one step ahead of what we actually know is possible. And so that's fascinating to me because I think the potential still exists out there that it can be something, it can be real, but are we seeing exactly what it is? Um, and so that was my initial interest, a long, long way to roll right into saying that eventually last year, once I had taken early retirement and I had the opportunity and especially coming to Germany here where, um, the, we're at a small air base, so it's not like, you know, I could go work a cash register or, go, you know, do something on base. And um, my wife said, you should just write and do what you want to you really want to do. And so I, I felt like I had a kind of a certain investigator's skill set and things that I had done that I, I didn't feel like there was a lot of real investigative journalism, like true hardcore investigative work and then sharing that with the public and so i said you know screw it i'll try to <laughs> blaze the trail myself so it's, it's as much for everybody else as me i think i'm as equally interested in it as anybody else and, and so that's what's kind of led me to where i am now and continues to be is uh, i try to put it under the lens as if all of this stuff i'm preparing it for the court of law can I grab a standard of evidence that uh, I would take into court and present in front of a jury? And, and the jury in this case is the people. It's, it's the public. You know, is there beyond a reasonable doubt something's going on? It's interesting. It's fascinating. No, and I get that from your articles that I've read as well recently that, that they're easy to read. There's a lot of language in there and acronyms and especially being from the UK when it's Department of Defense is easy enough. But then. Air Force Office of Special Investigations start coming into it and you've got all these different acronyms and different parts and it's like, wait a minute, I thought the DOD in this department was potentially the same thing, but then the Navy gets involved. And, but you, you lay it out in a really easy way to read and I think your, your expertise from what you've done in the past is absolutely transferable and that's what's really helping you to kind of rise to prominence in this, in this area. So I just want to ask, like, going back to... And just to touch on the, the site in itself, mm -hmm. I thought was great that like you've said there because there's an, an air of credibility when a police officer or someone in the military or someone with some kind of credible background sees something that you don't normally associate with having those kind of positive views of it. And it's not a joke anymore. So that that, that experience was great. Um, so firstly, the first two guests I had, um, Gary Voorhees and Sean Cahill, were both involved mm -hmm. in the USS Princeton and had their own views, their own experiences with those incidents back in 2004. My third guest, I brought on Jason Gleaves. I don't know if you know, he is based in the UK, former uh, Royal Air Force. He has uh, an expertise in image analysis and he shared mm -hmm. his views on those topics and more as well. And I very deliberately kind of mapped out, if I could, and I've been really lucky to get all four of you on, yourself as my fourth guest, because 
you've all got experiences or I know you don't like the word expert, but some form of expertise that allows <laughs> you to weigh in on the subject uh, from a different point of view. And I think for yourself that you've had your own experience, great, but the way you write about it, again, is very subjective. And it's, it's in the middle of you're, you're not sceptical as such, but also you're not sitting on the fence of these are aliens, these are this, these are that. It's the here are the facts and you allow people to kind of read into them in their own in their own way, which is great. So can you just tell me, did you have any thoughts and feelings back in December 2017 when the New York Times article first broke and we first saw that front page of the Pentagon's had its own UFO program? Uh, sure, yeah. You know, I remember being probably like a lot of people, fascinated and equally um uh, I think, you know, very suspicious at first. I, you know, that's one of the things that probably would surprise people, though, if they went back and even looked at some of my early articles. Um, I've, I've mentioned I've had people bring up the um, electronic countermeasures theory about some of these events, like could it have been uh, ECCM type stuff? And I have people share the uh, Project Palladium article with T.J. Barnes and Jean Petit that was in the war zone. They're like, have you read this? And I'm like, well, actually, I wrote it, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I was just as skeptical, uh, including the fact um, people often forget in, in the big uh, hit piece against Elizondo last year uh, in The Intercept. I'm quoted in it and not saying anything negative, just giving his actual background that I've looked into. Um, and so I was I was skeptical of it at first. I think you should be. I, I think, like you said, not jumping to any conclusions and maybe it frustrates people when I'm like, I can give you X number of reasons why I don't think it's classified secret U.S. tech. I can give you X number of reasons why I don't think it's foreign tech. But me to say that it's alien or something else, I think those first two, like you have to have an overwhelming abundance of evidence that says it's not man-made tech or something before you jump to aliens. And that's just because for me, like you said, I'm very objective in it and we don't have the objective evidence, though I know a lot of people have experiences and I think they have uh, a much different perspective there. And I respect that. I, I, I wish that uh, I wish I had some of those experiences. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't be as skeptical, but I, I, I did. I, when I heard the, the New York Times article, I was, I was skeptical at first. I think the videos themselves, I see a lot of arguing about it on Twitter and I see this and that. Uh, and recently, if you, you saw, I was uh, had a great chat with Mick West on his show. I was, really enjoyed that. Uh, I, watched where, that last, I watched that last night, actually. Yeah, it was. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. So it, interesting. Yep. And again, it's, I, I don't agree with a lot of what Mick West says, but I do appreciate where he's trying to come from with a lot of it and potentially the way it comes across can can be detrimental to what he's trying to achieve and i think well and i think you know and i don't want to speak for him but i would say just in our conversation both on and off the air i think that especially with the 2004 events they're pretty frustrating for him because i don't think he can debunk them and that was my whole point in that interview is that i think the videos themselves and i'd say this to anybody uh, even the, the most hardcore uh, believers, the videos themselves shouldn't be considered compelling evidence of anything alone. And uh, the evidence for that, we know, could go back to 2007 when they leaked on above top secret. If anybody's ever read those messages, you know, people were like, get out of here with this hoax. This is BS. That's junk. And I'm like, that's 
you know, you're right, alone by themselves. But when you add this totality of evidence that goes with it and all the great eyewitnesses you mentioned, uh, Gary is a great guy. I love Gary. Um, I haven't had a chance to speak to Sean. Um, but when you add this totality of evidence, it's very interesting. Uh, and so I think initially I would say when I saw it, I was skeptical uh, of the that, but yet fascinated. It, to a degree, it didn't surprise me. And you mentioned like how laying out all these different acronyms and everything. I'm very fortunate in the fact that I did grow up in a big military family. Um, you know, my, my uncle worked for the Joint Chiefs. He, he was with the DIA. He was at the Pentagon. My, you know, my next door neighbor growing up uh, and my best friend's father was General Joe Votel, who just recently command, uh, retired from CENTCOM. But he was the special operations commander during the bin Laden raid. I, I grew up in a world where... Um, you know, my uncle was a special a special forces officer. And so, you know, family vacations and stuff in the mountains in North Carolina, I was around CIA contractors back when people thought contractors meant they built houses. And so mm-hmm. and coming from a bureaucratic background, especially my last years when I was in, in the executive services of the police department, all these little nuances of bureaucracy you learn. And listening to all this stuff, you realize it's very, very complex and it's, you know, but it seems natural to me. So I understand when they're complaining about stuff or different things that I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, this, this and this, you know, at the Pentagon, it takes 10 people in a research study to change a roll of toilet paper. Um, <laughs> I, I hear that more and more from people like yourself from and Lou Elizondo's talked about it. And it's one of those things. Well, I think the view and, and euphoria has shifted that there's a group of people sitting in a room who know what this is, who basically say, we have the aliens locked away. We have the crap in this hangar. It's not like that. Things are so compartmentalized within the government. Like you say, it takes committees upon committees upon committees to make one decision about a decision. And and this yeah. is where people are starting to realize that it's, it's a good thing, but also a, a bit of a scary thing that the people running things maybe not maybe not competent aren't the words but they're not all quite in, as, as in sync as you would hope or want them to be in these different departments and they all have their own own agendas own objectives and and, and that's what they very much focus on sure and, and it's you're absolutely right and that's one of the things that's fascinating is is the, i've never seen any you know maybe it does but I've never seen any evidence for some kind of uh, inner cabal, like an MJ-12 group that controls it. What, what I've seen is very consistent with what I'd expect in government, which is a system of where you kind of you – know, I've said this multiple times. In, in the framework of the Department of Defense, the terms UFO and even UAP, you've heard them use it multiple times, that legally doesn't exist. And so when you have something that doesn't exist in such a rigid world – as as a military or government in general, where there is a policy for that policy for that policy. And if you stub your toe, you know, oh, I feel a form, what blah, blah, blah out. And it gets forwarded here. When you don't have that for anything, it's it, in a weird way, it doesn't exist. Like it just doesn't, you know, you're like, how could they not? A, a UFO, a flying saucer just flies next to the ship and then zips off at crazy speed. You know, maybe they do a report of some sort, but where it goes from there, it's kind of these things where people's like, I I don't know where the hell this goes. And you're right. It is interesting to think um, because there's such a preponderance of evidence in terms of eyewitness testimony and even going back to 
uh, one of the more formalized investigations, talking about Blue Book. And, and I brought this up uh, just recently about the Condon Committee report. Um, had a great conversation with a friend the other night about that who was very, very skeptical of it. And I'm like, man, go back and read the Condon Committee report because that's what killed Blue Book. That's kind of where 1969, when the idea that it was all junk came out, I said, go just go read it. Now, you don't have to read all 1,400 pages, but just read the conclusion again for yourself. And they, they texted me last night and were like, holy shit, this is not what I thought it said. <laughs> you know, it never said this is all junk. This is all can be explained by prosaic means. It just it really actually said, man, I don't, we don't know what the hell's going on. And this is such a difficult thing for us to wrap our brains around. Do we want to spend a bunch of money doing this? Or in those instances, they're in the middle of the Vietnam War. We're in the Cold War. Do you want to spend money? And that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize as well. Because to us, it's like, dude, the idea that it could be aliens or something is so freaking cool. How do you not invest your time and money into it? But when you have people who are like, forget that. You're not taking my F-35 budget. <laughs> you know, you're not going to take from yeah. this. Um, those all those factors come into play because to them, their mindset, uh, as long as you don't have UFOs attacking us, <laughs> It's their defense thinking. They're thinking, well, what the hell is North Korea doing? What is Iran doing? What is Russia doing? And how can we defend against this? That to them is real world. And so it's, it's really, really interesting when you get into the kind of inner sanctums and the hierarchy of the Department of Defense. You realize that less and less people go, oh, that's just junk. Forget that. And more like, yeah, man, there's some weird stuff. There's some weird stuff we've heard of. There's some weird stuff that's true. But. I've got all of this outlined that's in front of me that's more important, in my mind at least. <laughs> and so um, it's such a it, – that's it's one thing. And, and I am a legal policy nerd. I like the law. I like looking at the laws and everything because I think it's uh, – law is a very interesting topic in and of itself. And so looking at it from that perspective uh, maybe gives me a little different view of things. Doesn't mean it's right. You know, maybe I can always be wrong. Um, you know, me, hell, Lou Elizondo, the rest of them, we could all be getting played by the secret cabal for all I know, <laughs> you know, that, that are hiding the aliens. Um, that's you not know what I you, see. You, mean, mm -hmm. you made a really interesting point before about how in the past, particularly at times of like the Vietnam War, where money and budgets were focused on an area that they wanted to focus on. And like you say, ufology as much of a niche or as that niche is growing that's what we're interested in and that's where, where we want the the trillion dollar defense budget spent but it's not going to happen but you've then said that they look at threats from other countries do you think that's part of the reason why Alou Elizondo is going down the route not to say these things are a threat but he's trying to play the angle that these things are coming into US airspace unmatched we have got some of the best top gun pilots on the planet that are just being played with by these things and he's trying to make the point that this is how we can take this forward this is how we can get those people involved because if we play the the angle of a potential threat which a lot of people don't like and get very defensive about your stephen greers that want to really go into detail about how they're all peace loving and ce5 contact and that that's not the the agenda but again that's that's something that's again very hard to prove so would you say that's why Alou Elizondo was trying to go down this route because that's how you bring the government into this topic 
In short, sure, absolutely. But to expand on that as well, and that's the thing where I think at times um, I've been able to really get a good relationship with Lou Elizondo and understand him is though mine was more obviously more on the domestic side of things. And so it was criminal intelligence with drug networks and cartels and, and stuff like that. But working intelligence work, there's nothing more scary than the unknown. And so if anything is unknown, it is a threat. And, and I know that you're right. It does bother some people and some people who may very well have, I don't know, uh, um, had real true experiences with something. And so that's very real to them and they have a different perspective. But in the world of intelligence and, and defense world, the unknown is a threat. It is as, until you can understand motivation and intent. And, and I think. Uh, if we're talking about this, just even given, let's say, just narrow it down to the last 70 years, motivation and intent is something I think that you have to uh, question because you have these sightings, you have these events, uh, some very credible, very interesting things going on for a number of decades. But yet, clearly, and I've said it, if it's aliens, they don't give a shit what people think or have to do because yeah. they're not. They're not attempting to communicate or even do anything. And so if it is that, I think there's nothing wrong with questioning motivation and intent. And it's also extremely difficult when you go down this route. And I know a lot of people do of saying, well, this is what the aliens are doing and our space brothers and all this. If we're talking about something that is truly, truly alien, we don't have any frame of reference. I mean, we can't, we really truly can't determine what motivation intent is because we don't understand it. We, we can only assess it through our eyes and, and our views. And we know what human beings do. You know, once we see some resources we need, whether it be oil or whatever, we're like, let's go to war. And so um, that's kind of how things, I think the lens gets viewed from. And so, a, I think you're right. I think if you're going to bring it into a more tangible arena to where people who are dismissive of the topic just for personal reasons or biases or it's just not in their purview uh, to, to associate it and say, but hey, listen, man, you've got this great uh, air defense system. You've got one of the biggest and best intelligence apparatuses in the world and military. But this thing right here gives you the finger and just zips around and does what it wants. That's a threat. It does get their attention. And, and I think um, so it's wise and smart to do it that way, because uh, for all we know, you know, they're playing the long game. They're waiting another 70 years before they're like, all right, let's get them, boys. <laughs> and I don't know. But but I think it does get people's attention. And, and I have seen that. Um, I've interviewed uh, people. One of them, the uh, operations director for the American Meteorological Society, who uh, I mentioned this, where they told me point blank. They're like, look, the chances that there is an alien presence visiting Earth is exactly zero. That's what they said. I don't think – when you're investigating, you realize the chances of something being zero is that that is zero. Like, there's always a chance for everything. But that was his opinion. However, he said, but this stuff with these Navy videos and stuff, that really concerns me. Because what if it's Russian or Chinese tech? Like, what if this stuff's flying off our coast? And and so he had absolutely zero interest in, in approaching it like it could be aliens. But 
he said it interests him and, and he even told me, you know, by the way, our organization has a program where in two years, I think, we will have cameras that will cover the entire skies of the continental U.S. 24-7. And, and by the way, man, if you uh, I'm willing to let you have access to it. If you want to, you know, if you have somebody that says they report a sighting, we can go back and look at the dates and times in our camera and see if we captured something. So right then and there, I think if you try to push that person and, and debate with them why you can't rule out anything, but, uh, you're just going to lose them. And they're not going to be like, well, screw you. We're keeping our cameras and looking at meteors. Um, and so I, I don't think I think bringing things into where uh, people can associate them, I think is, that's not a bad thing. And, and I know you're right. It, people get mad. And it, if you can go to the desert and pray to the UFOs and they come down, man, cool. I, I think if you can really do that, well, then um, you probably don't need to sell videos and everything. Pray them down to, to let everybody know what their intent is and let's have a big introduction and let's, you know, get together and make the greatest discovery in human uh, civilization. Uh, so I, I, I am very cautious at anyone who who says they absolutely know anything. And so for me, it is it's is it's an unknown. Um, and I understand it. I understand why they would say threat. But I. I in having conversations with Elizondo or other people, I will say that they don't use that term in the means like they're trying to bolster a trillion dollar budget for us to build laser weapons to shoot anything out of the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least yeah. not UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I like what you said there about the, the chance of absolute zero. The only thing that is absolute zero is that, you know, is absolute zero. And yeah. I'll, I always love the analogy about you know, fish living down the bottom of the sea that spend most of their time down on the, the ocean bed. And now and again, one of them comes up and sees a boat. And it's like, ah, I saw a boat. And they go back to the other fish and tell the other fish, I saw a boat and they, they oh, nah, those don't exist. I've never seen one. Well, what did it do? Oh, it just sat there. It just sat there, yep. And then what? And then it went away. And then someone else, another fish sees a boat, but that boat's fishing and tries to catch them. Or oh, this boat actually took me on board and I got off that boat. That's just crazy talk. That doesn't happen. Because in the expanse of the ocean, most fish don't see boats. And that's the way I kind of look at UFOs and ufology that, well, why not? We, we are so much better and more advanced than these fish. Then what What if we are just that the fish to those, that higher consciousness, those other beings, whatever these things are that are kind of toying with the military, toying with people, toying with society. Um, and do you know what? Maybe they're not toying. Maybe it's just a, a way of communication we've not quite worked out yet. But yeah, yeah. Um, can, can I just that's ask? A great what? analogy. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm gonna steal that, man. That is a great analogy. That is that's that's a really damn good analogy. <laughs> I hope you use that every show because that you're so right. We are limited to our perception, to our our own experiences, and and you're right. If if we're if we're fish that live in the very deep deep, we've never seen a boat. Or you know, one of our buddies ventured up and saw one, and then we're like, "Yeah, full of shit. There's nothing past that." <laughs> Sorry, yeah. go ahead. That's just a great no, analogy. No, no. I'm gonna use that. That's great, man. No, please steal it. I'm just I'm waiting for someone to pick holes on that one day. <laughs> but that's good. Cheers, man. Um, do you have a favorite of the three videos that were leaked, and and for any particular reason, is there one that intrigues you more than any other? Oh, uh, sure. Well, uh, yeah, the, the 2004 Nimitz event, but that's solely based on the fact that that is the only one that I have truly, truly put any time into. And, and there's enough data points out there that I think um, 
you know, as an investigator, that's what's important. And I try to express to people like I'm not a scientist and nor am I trying to conclude anything as scientific fact. Um, you know, when you're investigating a homicide, you don't try to solve that by uh, testing it, replicating it, killing people to see if this is how it happened. Um, and so you, you make key judgments and 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 what's called peri empirical logic, which is what's observationally sound logic and makes sense in, in instances that you can't replicate. Um, it's the, all of social science does that, you know, psychology. And so that's how I approach it. And so for me, having enough data points for 2004 with all the eyewitnesses and, and all these different things, that is a good case for me. Um, have been able to examine the, the 15 events in terms of the videos uh, and just in general, there's just not enough data points for me to come out and say anything conclusive about them yet. Uh, I think just the recency of it, because a lot of the people who were involved in those are probably still in the military. Um, whereas 2004, you have just a, a really impressive empirical framework to look at with eyewitnesses from from multiple perspectives. And so for that one, that video is the most intriguing. But again, I think superficially, all three of them, the videos just themselves, that those are not evidence of anything. And um, I think there's still a lot of uh, a lot of debate to be had with the 2015 videos as to what we're exactly we're seeing. Um, some great uh, discussion I had just last night on, on Twitter with a good friend of mine, Tyler Rogaway from The War Zone, who I write for. Um, you know, he, he's more of the mind that those are foreign drones and that type of stuff, which I'm totally open to. But I do have questions. You know, there's a lot of questions there, um, including, you know, how do you have an entire failing of the air defense apparatus to not be able to identify that? And then moreover, if that's the case, what the hell are they? And so that's what's interesting <laughs> is they could be man-made. But there's some answers. There's some questions that we have to answer. Like, what yeah. the hell? Yeah. Joe Bob's little hobby drone isn't flying 18,000 feet in the air 100 miles off the coast. They don't have the battery or the power to do that. And so yeah. it's intriguing. Um, and that was uh, Chris Mellon on TTSA Talks last week on Twitter mm -hmm. that was really good. And that's something that's going to be coming back. And I think that extra level of transparency with that organization, particularly that I'm a big fan of, I think will help. Um, he had answered one of those questions regarding the video's credibility that they don't necessarily show all the things people are assuming they show. I think, like you say, right. you've got to take the weight of the pilot's testimony, the eyewitness testimony, the radar data, and a lot of other variables to really get a full view if you're just taking those particular clips in isolation. Um, however, that the fact, as you say, that these things are out where they are, performing at speeds and heights that they are, and again, we're taking pilot testimony, but moving at the speeds and performing the maneuvers they are, if these are Chinese or Russian or some other country's tech, then like has been quoted many times, you're talking multi, multi-generational leaps ahead. And that in itself is a fascinating topic and conversation, regardless of it being alien or not. That, that's world-changing physics. That's that's life-changing. That's life-altering. Um, but that that's the fascination in this. And I think that's where some people, and like you said before, you're not a scientist, but that's maybe a good thing because there's some very respected scientists like your Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has given his own opinion when he saw the video of UFO doesn't mean alien. And for someone who's that intelligent and that bright 
to come out with that comment. It's like, well, m- most most people in ufology aren't saying that they're alien. A, a UFO isn't an alien. You know, they, they, they go hand in hand, but that's the conversation that we're trying to change. Well, and I all due respect to, to people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, at first of all, I thought that if anybody read Seth Shostak's recent article after the April 27th release of the videos, I thought it was great. I think people can criticize him all they want to, and I understand why. But I thought it was great because he acknowledged, hey, guys, if you know the collective brain power of the DOD is saying they can't identify them, this has probably not got a simple answer. But the evidence for the, me to believe this is alien has to be a lot more than that. I respect that totally. In fact, I share that. But I thought it was nice. But with Neil deGrasse Tyson and people like that, I, I'd tell them to their face. I'd love to talk to them and say, man, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I do believe that's a simplistic view of things. And I think that in the grand scheme of things, the the, the, the names that we know. Uh, throughout history, when it comes to science, Newton, uh, Pelagra Theramus, uh, you know, Einstein, these aren't people who saw problems or questions and, and tried to fit them into the existing framework of what we knew. They realized that the answer for this probably lies beyond the current hypothesis we're using. And so the people who truly make innovative leaps in in human technology and science are the ones who are willing to say, you know what, it it maybe isn't a distant commercial plane. It maybe isn't this and this. Um, It maybe, yeah, it is an alien, but we don't have a good what it is yet. And so they seek to try to answer that. That's what I said. um, If you look at UFOs, I think one of the fundamental problems with it is that the very title itself. I like UAP. I know people got mad about that, but um, it takes the word flying out of it. And because I've said they're not flying, you know, if, if they're behaving in the characteristics that uh, eyewitnesses or different radar telemetry and all these things say they are, they're not using the principles of flight as we know them. So lift, mm-hmm. uh, propulsion, you know, we know how these things work. They're doing something else. And so by book definition, they're not flying. Uh, or excuse me, by our physics actual definition, they're not flying. By dictionary definition, they're in the air moving around. They're flying. So if the answer is yes and no, it means that the real answer lies by, beyond the hypothesis. It, but we can't f- try to fit. And I think this goes on the extreme, quote, believer side. And I don't mean that derogatorily. Um, some people maybe are more believers because of experience uh, or the extreme skeptic side. Um if you just try to jam it into whatever your yes or no belief is, you may be missing the whole thing entirely. And it is not really propelling us forward. Um, and that's where oftentimes um, I get bored because I'll get more frustrated with, quote, skeptics sometimes. Although not Mick. I like Mick. I know Mick gets a hard time, but I think, you know. He does try to fit things in. Uh, for him, it's easier to compartmentalize and just view the videos and not look at everything. But some skeptics, I think, are not real skeptics. I mean, you know, they're contrarians to be contrarians. You know, <laughs> they don't say things like, uh, you know, has anybody examined this? It's always, well, nobody's talking about this, are they? Ha ha, <laughs> dummies, yeah. I'm superior to you. And it's like, well, you're, no, you're kind of an asshole. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah, that, that, you know what? Mick's mm-hmm. a pretty new character to myself, and I think only only really in the recent weeks with 
getting a lot more followers on Twitter and more involved in the conversation. And someone like Mick comes on to my, my radar as such. Um, and in watching that video that I saw last night, uh, or the interview, sorry, Mick's clearly quite an eloquent an eloquent guy. He's an intelligent guy. He's, he's English. And... Um, there's a, a British aspect of our characters where whether we're Scottish, English, Irish or Welsh that we can we can like to annoy people and it's a British humour that we kind of like to wind people up and I sometimes look at some of his, some of his comments and I wonder has he kind of cast a metaphorical fishing rod and uh, do you know what, I've got a bit of a bite here and not that he's not believing what he's saying but maybe he sees that he's pushing people's buttons and he can do it in an intelligent way that he knows it's frustrating them and I think some people jump on that a little bit too much. And if you can, like yourself, you've managed to engage in a debate with them and a conversation that you maybe come out the end of it. Neither of you agree with the other, but you do see the other's point of view. That's the, that's the avenue to go with it. And maybe online people are getting a little bit too personal with it and allowing themselves to get kind of roped in. That's a very early judgment of my own into kind of seeing mixed mix stance. Sure. And and you're right. And, and I am as guilty as Mick in, in some regard there that I'll acknowledge I enjoy, uh, you know, I was on the debate team back in school and these things. I enjoy that. Uh, first of all, combat sports and conflict is inherently something that human beings love. I mean, you know, when you watch soccer, when you watch whatever, it's a competition between two people. It's conflict for a winner. And so I, what you just said, I think is very accurate. I, I enjoy the mental uh, combat. There's times when I take on people in Twitter where I may not even truly, you know, like be like my stance is correct, but I'm like, screw it. I'm going to play mental chess because it's fun. And so <laughs> I think that Mick does that as well. Um, I had a great chat with Mick for like an hour after we were off the air the other day. And so I think uh, one of the things that I really respect, although you're right, sometimes that in and of itself just burns people's ass is when somebody can remain respectful the whole time and not yeah. lose their stuff that uh, that frustrates people. I, I told Mick from the get go right before we started that show, I forget I had just come from some meeting. So I was wearing a tie and dress nice. And he's like, oh, you're, you're I was going to say now. you were very, very smartly dressed. Yeah, I did notice that. <laughs> well, and I, um, <laughs> I it was kind of happenstance, but I do try to. You know, that goes back to even back in policing when I was in charge of officers there. To tell the people, and it's true. You know, if you look like you know what the hell you're talking about or doing, that's about eighty percent of it. <laughs> and so, yeah. but Mick's got the great gold, silver hair and the English accent. I'm like, shit, I'm behind the curve here. He's already sounds. You already want to accept him as being a genius. And so, um, I do. I, I think. But the one thing I really appreciate with Mick is that he does engage, and, and I. Uh, that's something I think is unfortunate with a lot of the some of the skeptics that I've tried to engage with. And I, and I don't like using the term skeptics because I don't think they're being skeptics. You know, skeptic is a good thing. Um, but you want to engage it. And you want to try to figure something out. And you want to hear you want to hear the opposite arguments. But some people, I said, they're just contrarian to be contrarian. And so when you bring up an opposite point of that, they just ignore it and move on to the next thing to try to make somebody look silly or whatever. Or they often will not uh, be willing to talk to me. And I mean, that's one of the things I constantly say, um, man, I'll talk to anybody. 
and, and I'll, you know, hey, message me. We'll chat on the phone. There's there's a number of people on Twitter who could attest to that, that I've been like, hey, you can't have any real conversation on Twitter. That's silly. You know, <laughs> you're limited by character limits. But, man, let's have a chat. And um, it's unfortunate because some of the probably the most vehement uh, people out there that you see saying nasty things against UFO community or anybody like they will not talk to me. <laughs> They're like, nope. Mm-mm. And I'm like, well, what are you doing then? And so um, I think healthy skepticism is good. And an English Absolutely. accent helps. <laughs> yeah. And, and being Scottish, I would I would disagree with English accent helping. But, All right. You're right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with you know what, I, a good Scottish name, I agree with you. You're right. You, screw me. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> and you know what? I, I would encourage folk. And I'll stay off the bat. I, I, I'll stay off the bat. I don't agree with what a lot of mixed coming at, but I, I do get some of his points and I think it is always healthy to see the other side of the argument. So I would encourage people to try and engage in a healthy conversation. A sense of humour always helps in 2020. God knows we need humour more than ever in today's society because it's it's a dying art form. Um, but with someone like Mick, go on, watch the chat with Tim particularly. It's really good. And you know what, if nothing else... If you don't pick up any points you, you agree with from Mick's point of view, it might strengthen your own argument and, and what you believe in. Can I just ask to kind of wrap up slightly on the whole Tic Tac incident? Because it's something that's still very much mm-hmm. playing out week after week after week and it's a developing situation. Is there any aspect of it, Tim, that you find most intriguing and something that you've researched or something that you think is still to come? Um, hmm. I think the the some of the I think the most intriguing aspect of it that in just in the witness testimony that I've talked about and that it hasn't even really been public. Uh, I hate to keep plugging Mick show because I mentioned it for the first time on Mick show. But some of the behavioral characteristics of what the objects that were seen, that's really intriguing to me because you had uh, in this case, I've been fortunate to interview two, three, four, five, four or five people who witnessed the physical object. So some of them just from the surface vessel or the Princeton, uh, like Gary, um, and others being the pilots. And the the most intriguing thing to me is how they describe the behavior of these, how how, how they operate. That's extreme. That's where it goes into this realm of, well, hell, are these alien? Because these behavioral characteristics is not just defying physics, but as we can kind of bring it into but also nonsense, like this erratic darting around. And, and I've used the analogy of bucket of minnows, you know, several times where that's what they described. That's weird, because even if we're talking about a, a drone system that's been developed by somebody, whether it's got a human operator or it's autonomous, again, the person who's developed that is human. And so it's going to behave in manners that are consistent with what we would want for human design. And so this idea of just darting around oddly, you know, hovering above the ocean and then zipping back and forth, not only does this kind of defy how we understand um, lift and propulsion, but also why? Why the hell do you do that? Like, what's the purpose? And so that behavior itself is inherently alien. You know, we don't know why you would do that. So I think in those regards, uh, that that the the behaviors of these objects uh, being described were the most fascinating. For me, probably the most compelling thing is uh, some of the witness testimony from the pilots themselves who observed them. 
maybe more than even what Commander Fravor has said publicly and everything. But for me as a behavioral analyst, having an opportunity to talk to them one-on-one and hear all the cues that you're looking for, all the emotional uh, things that you would be looking for for when you're when you're investigating somebody's testimony, um, to hear them align with with what I mentioned way earlier in the show of talking to people who had really seen something that challenged their reality, to hear those cues come out is is really compelling. And I mean, that's really, really intriguing to, to because it's very consistent with what I said. People who saw or experienced something and whatever it was, it challenged it, it, it's hard. It challenged their idea of reality. Um, that's probably the most intriguing thing when it comes there. Um, just in the 2004 events. And I, I'll give you an exclusive here. I haven't mentioned anywhere else, but I'll tell you in the 2015 events, um, yeah, I, I've talked to the people at ONI who, who um, currently are running this program. They say it's not foreign technology. You know, it's not China or Russia. So now, you know, again, it's kind of like anything else. Um, uh, you know, they hold a lot of credibility because I know what positions they're in. I know their careers. I know what they're doing, uh, where their funding is. And so it's like these are definitely people who should know and should be able to, to determine that. Um, but until we fully know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very cautious there. I, listen, I, I, like you said early on, uh, police, military make great witnesses because they're we're trained observers. We're trained to observe the environment. We're trained to, and we have different tools at our disposal to figure out what things are. But I work with a lot of cops who are batshit crazy. And so it you know, doesn't mean that people can't be crazy, but it, it's very compelling there. And so I think um, it, it, it's still unknown. They're all unknown. It, it's an easy, logical answer to say, oh, it's Chinese or it's secret black tech. Well, prove it. And until you yeah. prove it, it, it's unknown. That's all for part one from Tim. Part two will be released later on this week, folks. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. Just remember to like and subscribe on whichever podcast platform you choose to listen to the show. That's That UFO Podcast. Give us a like and say hello on Twitter at UFO UAPAM. And a big shout out as well to Craig, who is the first patron of That UFO Podcast. Craig, that show is absolutely dedicated to you. Thank you very much. Again, folks, stay tuned. Later on this week, you'll hear more from Tim, including the state of play, uh, where are we now with the government's role in the UAP phenomena, what has been left unanswered in Tim's opinion, where do we go next, and a lot more, including a lot of listener questions to which some of the answers are absolutely fascinating. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer.
more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be at, it's you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jake? Wasn't a 